Welcome to Frontline Church South OKC Sermon Podcast. Each week we will have new sermon content from Sunday mornings, both video and audio options. Please visit south.frontlinechurch.com for more information. If you have any questions, need prayer, or have any other needs at all, please email hello at frontlinechurch.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. Scripture for today's teaching is Mark 14, 1 through 26. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was in Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came over with an alabaster flask of ointment, a pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where would you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house. The teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came to the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with us. They began to be sorrowful and say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written for him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he, was given, when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This is the word of God to us. Thanks be to God. All right, you guys can take a seat. 
Rachel, thank you for doing the heavy lifting. Some of you guys were like, oh, I think we're going to finish the whole book of Mark today. <laughs> nope. Just the first half of uh, chapter 14. Hey, if you're new to the church, my name is Sean. I get to serve as one of the pastors here. And we have, for almost a year now, been studying the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark. And we've made it to this portion that historically is called the Passion of Jesus, the Passion of Christ, uh, the first part of Mark chapter 14. And uh, man, I'm excited to, to jump into this text with you guys. And uh, if you're like reading this whole 26 verses and you're like, how on earth is this one sermon? That's where I was like Monday. So um, let me just pray because nothing that I have to say, I, I actually think that Mark gave this to us in a really strategic way. And I think it's beautiful and I want to share with you, but nothing that I have to say is going to be helpful unless the spirit of God comes and helps us. So open your hands and hearts and just pray with me. God, we are opening up the very scriptures that you gave us. The very word of God is ours. And we're opening it up today, and we just want to do it with humility. And we want to say, if you don't come and help us, we're never going to understand it, and we're surely not going to obey it. So we pray that you'd give us courage and help to do both today. We pray that you'd open up the scriptures in a way that's clear to us. God, we want to be shaped. We want to be changed and this is your revelation to us to do it. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, help us as we study now and teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, hey, it's crazy to me to think that this last week is actually kind of the two-year anniversary of when our whole world shut down for COVID. Isn't that crazy? It's been two years. Um, I was talking to somebody earlier, and I was like, honestly, if you gave me $100, I couldn't tell you, like, you know, what happened a month ago, if it was a month ago or if it was 18 months ago. I have no idea. It all blends together. But it's been two years since we had our first uh, COVID shutdowns. And one of the things that uh, my wife and I in that time missed the most was just getting to open up our home and invite people in to sit around a table and share a meal together. Man, that is like one of our favorite things to do. And that is not a popular or good idea when COVID is raging. So we have not been able to have people over or be on the back porch grilling out some of our favorite times. And uh, I just, as I think about that, um, I'm, I'm aware, like, isn't it true that something unique and something beautiful happens when you're with friends or you're with neighbors or you're with family and you're gathering around a meal? And you share the meal and then there's just this moment where you're sitting together, you're reclining at table and you're saying, man, that was a, that was a beautiful meal. And life just kind of starts to open up and uh, you start to share stories and you start to share hopes and you start to share longings and disappointments and you just share life with one another. Man, these are some of my favorite things to do uh, with friends. And in Mark chapter 14, we're cutting from the last scene where Jesus is having in chapter 13 this really long conversation about the destruction of the temple. And the next scene opens up and we see Jesus around a table at a dinner party with some friends. It says, he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper. And as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. She broke the flask and poured it over his head. Hey, I don't know about you, but like sometimes I feel like we read the scripture, we read the stories of Jesus, and we just like to sterilize things. Like we like to go, well, this was probably a really great group of really awesome people that were super holy. And like, after all, one of the things that's on their resume is that they ate meals with Jesus. They must have been like really great people. 
And uh, I just want to say, like, reading this story, this is a super weird group. It's a really weird group. Um, Think about, like, what we know from some of the other gospel accounts is the people that were at this dinner were probably a couple of ex-tax collectors. Like, that was their story. We have Lazarus, who was a guy that recently was dead, but he's not dead anymore. He's raised to life, so, like, he's got a crazy story. Um, He brought his sisters with him. We have Judas, the guy who says he's really close and following Jesus, but he's actually secretly doing his own thing. He's building his own kingdom. He's doing all this stuff behind the back of Jesus. Then we have Simon the leper. It says that it was hosted at the home of Simon the leper. Or as I like to think that he probably wanted to be called Simon the super regular guy that doesn't have leprosy anymore. So can we stop talking about it? Like imagine, like, guys, you're my friends. It's been like two years since Jesus healed me. Can we come up with a different nickname? That would be really good for me. And then you have this woman who, like, for whatever reason says, yes, I'm coming to the dinner party, but I'm bringing a jar of burial oil with me. Like, that's weird. Um, I don't know what your community group is like. I think you probably think it's pretty weird. I promise you, Jesus had the weirder community group. He really did. Um, This is just a a strange bunch. And, uh, man, there's a lot that we've got to cover today in 26 verses of Mark chapter 14, but I believe that there's a really important reason that Mark starts this section with the story of the dinner party, and he gives us some stories in succession. So three three things that I want us to cover today, and we're going to start at this dinner party because I believe in the way that you and I experience life and beauty start to open up when we're around a table. I think that happens in this story too, and, uh, and I think it has great significance. So let me just tell you where we're going. I want us to see today Jesus has the new temple. I want us to see today Jesus is the new sacrifice and Jesus is the true king. These are this is where we're going today. So the new temple. I want us to to dive back into the story. The placement of this dinner party really matters. Um, Like we've seen as we've studied the book of Mark and other places, we've seen just these events that maybe feel random or feel like they stand alone by themselves. But the literary tool that Mark continues to use again and again is he'll sandwich three things together. And alone they mean one thing, but when they're together and you look at the sandwich of all three, there's some new beauty and some new uh, significance that actually gets magnified. So zoom out with me for just a second. Here we are, the beginning of chapter 14. Zoom out with me, and I think you're going to see some beauty here. Remember, for the last three weeks, we've been in this deep dive of chapter 13, where Jesus is, it's this long conversation, but the short story is Jesus is talking to his disciples and he's plainly telling them, hey, the the temple, the physical temple is going to be destroyed. And they're like, you know, they're walking around and they're like, hey, Jesus, look at these buildings. Isn't this great? Isn't it beautiful? And he's like, "Uh, about that. I need to tell you some bad news. And he gives them this whole thing about how the temple is going to be destroyed and what they need to look out for. And that's what all of chapter 13 is about. So chapter 13 is like the middle of this sandwich. It's the middle story because if we go back to the end of chapter 12, do you remember what happens? We have the story of the poor widow. You remember she gives everything she has to the temple as an offering, as a sacrifice. And Jesus, he's like watching this with his disciples and he has some things to say about it. He's like, hey, this is 
This is a broken system. This temple, the way that it stands right now, it's a broken system. Here, these religious leaders in the synagogue, they're supposed to be using the offering that comes into the temple to actually serve the poor and serve the widows. But what they're doing is they're requiring of them and they're devouring them. This is not okay. This is not the way the temple is supposed to be. The temple, throughout all of Scripture, throughout all the Old Testament up to this point, has meant to be and is supposed to be, it represents the place where heaven comes to meet earth. This is the place where people go to meet with God. Even all the way back, remember in the Garden of Eden, you have Adam and Eve, and they're walking in the cool of the day with God. This is the temple, as it were, for the the first man and the first woman. And then you see uh, with the Israelites, we see that God meets with them through a pillar of cloud by day, He meets with them through a a pillar of fire by night. Everywhere they go, God is moving with them. They have this place that they can go to and meet with God. And then with Moses, and and later in the story, you see that there's this tent of meeting. There's this moving tabernacle everywhere they go. They set this tent up, and they're like, this is the place where we're going to go to meet with God. And eventually, we have Solomon's beautiful temple. And after it's destroyed, we have this temple that they're seeing now in Jerusalem. But when Jesus comes... He's doing something that's completely shocking. And all of a sudden, instead of this physical temple, we have a declaration that the word becomes flesh and dwells among us. Literally, all of a sudden, we have this word that comes to us and says, the word of God has become flesh and is tabernacled amongst the people. No longer do we have to commune with God by going to a physical place, but we have a person who comes to us. This is beautiful. So the woman at the dinner party, man, she just gets it. She sees who Jesus is. She really believes that he's the one that has come to give access to God the Father. He is the new temple. And so this woman, in this story, like the widow in chapter 12, if you look at the first bookend, she's the second bookend who comes and says, like that widow who comes to give something costly and all that she has to the temple She comes and she brings something costly. She brings something and she breaks it over the new temple. And and this is also a temple that's going to be destroyed, but it's not going to stay destroyed. He's going to be raised again so that we can have access to God the Father. This is really beautiful when you see these three things in succession. So if we zoom out, we see that sandwich. We see that picture, the three pictures of the temple. But hey, if we zoom back in to this story of this dinner party and this woman, I think we see something really beautiful and it kind of puts it into color. Mark, in chapter 14, he leaves the people. He leaves, did you notice, most of the people in the story are left unnamed. But if you go to, if you flip over to John 12, and you don't have to go there right now, but I just want to tell you, read the story sometime. In John chapter 12, you actually see the same story, but it's got details about who's at the party. We know that this is the party that was thrown after Lazarus had been raised from the dead. So it's Lazarus, it's Mary and Martha, his sisters, some of the other disciples. And what we know is Mary, the sister of Lazarus, is actually the one who comes and breaks the flask of oil over Jesus and begins to worship him in this way. Isn't it fascinating that the sister who had a brother who was dead, who's no longer dead, is like, man, I have all this burial oil. I don't know what to do with it anymore because my brother's not dead. Part of the ritual was that they would continue to anoint the body with oil 
And now she has this costly flask of oil that she's got left. And scholars tell us that this actually would have been like a family heirloom. This would have belonged to the whole family. It would have been, for mul- it would have been meant for multiple burials. And she just breaks it open and offers to Jesus her brokenness and her sadness. She comes undone in the presence of Jesus at the reality that Jesus is, Jesus is the one that brought her brother back from the grave, and now he's going to the grave, and she just realizes this, and she begins to anoint him with this costly oil. It's like this mix of oil and gladness and gratitude and sadness and tears. She, just, she is broken. And as I read this story this week, it just occurs to me that this would not have been the, the first time that these two wept together. Jesus wept at the grave of Lazarus because of what death took away, but now she's weeping because the one who brought Lazarus back is going to offer himself up to die to put death in its grave. She realizes it. She sees it. And in a real way, she's, she's recognizing there's a trade-off happening here. There's a life for a life. There's a death for a death. And the beauty of this, man, and she's just like brokenhearted, pouring herself out, giving Jesus the most costly thing that she has. And the, the beauty of this, it just flies over everyone else's head. Man, once again, we get like this episode of adventures and miss, totally missing the point. The disciples are like, hey, couldn't we have sold that, you know, for the poor? And Jesus is like, hey, that's not even what's going on in your heart. The other guests, man, they're outraged. They start to shame her. They try to Jesus juke her. And Jesus is like, hey, stop. She's actually doing something beautiful. She's preparing me for my burial in a way that nobody else has even thought to do. Nobody else wants to believe that he's going to die. They keep avoiding the conversation every time he brings it up. And Jesus is like, she's the only one that seems to even understand what's happening here. I'm not going to be with you much longer. She's absolutely broken over it. She doesn't like take the lid off of this flask so that she can use a little bit of it. She breaks it over his head and she just starts to anoint him. She pours the whole thing out. And um, what we know from the story is it was really costly. It says it was costly, but the, the disciples, when they see this happen, what did they say? Hey, that could have been sold for over 300 denarii. That's over a year's wages. So think about this. This flask of oil, this costly burial ointment, this would have been like a savings account to this family. This would have been like her safety net. This would have been something that she could have saved if something were to happen to her or her family. She could have saved this for the dark day that comes for her. It could have been traded. It could have been sold. And it could have helped the family out. And she just breaks the thing. And she goes, Jesus, you're more costly than anything I have. You're my hope. You're my covering for the dark day, Jesus. I trust in you more than any other treasure that I have, knowing you. Having access to God the Father is more valuable to me than anything else in my life. And I want to offer this to you in worship. There's nothing more valuable. So Jesus, he comes to her defense, and he's like, everyone else is missing it. The brokenness that she's showing here is actually appropriate. Jesus says these words that show us, hey, this is actually, this woman... This is the example of how you're supposed to come to God. Look at verse 9. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Isn't it something 
that we don't think that this is the way to come to God so many times? Isn't it something that again and again in our own stories, on some level we just think, hey, the way to come to God is to get kind of put together first, at least, at least get some of your stuff in order first before you really come to him. And in my own struggle to come to God with my whole self, I feel like I'm finally scratching the surface on something new that he's showing me. That maybe, just maybe, true lament is like the purest form of worship. Where we're just able to come to God with our whole selves and go, I don't understand any of what you're doing. Nothing makes sense. It feels like a huge mess and I'm really frustrated about it. And here are all my thoughts and here are all my feelings and here are all my tears and I'm just offering them to you. I think there's actually something really beautiful that happens there. Um, I ran into someone this week that's a part of our church, and we, we haven't seen each other for most of the last couple of years. I ran into him, and he said, oh, man, I just want you to know we, we love you, and we're, we're still there. We're, we're still you know, part of you guys. We want to be a part of the church. We're still following Jesus. It's just that there have been some things. The last two years have just been hard, man. Some things have happened that we're just we're trying to process. We're trying to get all that sorted out before we really come back. I'm like, Hey, brother, I don't think that's the way it's supposed to work. I think actually we're supposed to bring our pain. I think actually we're supposed to bring our struggle. I think we're supposed to bring our frustrations to to God and to one another. That's the way the church works. Psalm 51, David says it like this. He's talking to God. He says, you won't delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You would not be pleased with a burnt offering But the sacrifices to God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. This is the heart of God. Hey, especially through the passion, but throughout all of Jesus' life and ministry, we see he's just surrounded by brokenness and he never moves away from it. He's always moving toward it. But also he's going to start to say things like, I came to be near to the broken, but also I came to be broken. And that's the next scene that we see. The scene shifts again, and we have another meal. So the first thing I wanted you to see, Jesus, he's this new temple, this place where we have access to God the Father. But also I want you to see he's the new sacrifice. If we keep reading in the story, Mark tells us that the time has come once a year for this Passover meal. This is a meal that would have been celebrated only inside the city of Jerusalem once a year where they would remember the lamb that was sacrificed to give blood to protect the Israelites from death in the Exodus. And this is the moment in their history where they look back and they remember that by no righteousness of their own, by, not by the, the, the family line that they were a part of, not by the color of their skin, but only by trusting in what God had provided would they escape death. This is what they come together to remember. They remembered that time where the lamb was slain, the blood was used, and it was sprinkled over the doorposts, and death passes over their family. And these disciples, they come together for this meal with Jesus, and they would have celebrated this dozens of times in their life. They would have done this every year since they were little kids. And the elements were always the same. Um, if you've ever celebrated or if you've ever been a part of a Passover Seder, it's a really fascinating, beautiful meal where there are all these elements and each element tells a part of the story of their, of their, uh, of their rescue. And so there, are, there, are, uh, these, there was fruit, 
bitter herbs. They had unleavened bread. There was wine and there was lamb. And each part represented a piece of the story, but this is a really scripted ceremonial meal. So the presider over the meal, in this case Jesus, the presider would have always stood up and would have started to read the script. And it would have been things like, traditionally, they would lift the bread up and they would say, this is the bread of our affliction, which our fathers ate in the wilderness. Take and eat. And they would do that. But Jesus, it's not what he says. Look at verse 22. And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Jesus totally jumps the script and says something that would have been really shocking to hear. Instead of saying, this is the affliction of our fathers, Jesus breaks bread. He holds it out to his friends and he says, this is my affliction. This is my body broken for you. This is the blood of the new covenant. Not the covenant that you made with me, but the covenant that I am making with you. This is the new sacrifice. Not the sacrifice that you have to make and keep for me, but the sacrifice that I'm making and offering to you. Do you see it? It's beautiful. Jesus is changing everything about this meal. Look what Tim Keller has to say, a really beautiful insight that I thought was helpful. When Jesus stood up to bless the food, he held up bread. All Passover meals had bread, and he blessed the wine. All Passover meals had wine, but not one of the Gospels mentions a main course. There is no mention of lamb at this Passover meal. What kind of Passover would be celebrated without lamb? There was no lamb on the table because the lamb of God was at the table. Jesus was the main course. That's the reason that when John the Baptist saw Jesus for the first time, he said, look, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the presider over the feast, but also Jesus is the feast. And he's offering himself to his friends. He holds up the bread and he says to his friends, take and eat. This is my body. It was broken for you. I'm giving my spotless, perfect life to be the lamb of God that takes away your sin and rescues you. I'm being broken so that you can be made whole. This is what he says to his friends. And he holds up the cup of wine. He says, this is my blood. I'm instituting a new covenant that I'm going to keep. That idea of covenant being marked by blood in the Old Testament was as if to say, I'm going to keep this promise to you even if it cost me my own blood. Jesus comes to his friends and he says, I'm making a covenant. I'm going to keep it and it will. I'm offering myself to you. Jesus says that this meal is the new Passover. This is the new Exodus. Guys, we were in bondage. We were under the rule and reign of evil taskmasters like sin and death. Jesus steps in to say, I'm going to be the Passover. I'm going to be the sacrifice so that you can have rescue, so that you can have freedom. By faith, we no longer have to make a sacrifice, but we get to come to a meal and we, re- we get to remember there was a sacrifice that was made once for all for us. We don't have a sacrifice to make. We just get to receive now. We're going to do that here in a moment. We're going to receive 
this meal, this Passover meal, this communion meal with one another. But before we do that, I just want to show you one other thing with the verses that we skipped over. So Jesus is the new temple. Jesus is the new sacrifice. The last thing you got to see this, Jesus is the true king. Before we close, let me just back up. I want to cover kind of a strange section that's in the middle of this story. I think there's something really beautiful here for us. Go back to verse 12. It says, On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city And a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out, went to the city, and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. As I read over this, this just feels to me like one of those old school, like my generation video games, you know, like the 2D kind, not the, not the totally 3D VR, like those games where, you know, that was like, wah, 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 and you like, go find a guy. And when you get there, push A, press A, and then there's going to be a speech bubble that comes up and he'll tell you what to do. It just feels like that. This is a crazy story. This is the middle of Jerusalem during Passover. Like, historians say there would have been between two and two and a half million people in the city at this point. So here they are, showing up to the middle of, you know, it's like New York City at Christmas time. Find a guy who's carrying a specific thing. And it happens just the way Jesus said it was going to happen. And they go up to him, and they start to talk to him. And he's like, what do you need? And they're like, we'd like your biggest room in your house, please. And he's like, here's the keys. That's crazy. This is, uh, you know, like a few years before Airbnb. This is like not the way that things normally happen. And even if there was a guy renting a room like, hey, you're a little late to the party. There's already 2 million people in the city. I don't have anything left. But Jesus tells them what to do. They go and they find it just as he said it would be. There's a whole lot that's written about this section. There's probably more that we could talk about. I just want you to see one thing and then we'll be done. Here's what I want us to see. In this story, in this passage, in all that we've read, it seems like chaos is starting to surround Jesus, doesn't it? It seems like darkness is starting to close in. This chapter that we just read, it opens with the chief priests and scribes. They're not just angry with Jesus. They're not just trying to silence Jesus. They're at a point where they're like, we got to figure out how to plot his death and kill him. That's what's happening. And then you see his disciples that, you know, he's telling his friends, hey guys, you don't have much longer with me. And they just want to argue about spilled perfume. One of his very best friends in the whole world, Judas Iscariot, has decided, man, I'm totally done. Like whatever following Jesus means, I'm done with it. And I'm not just going to bail on him. I'm actually going to leave in a way that I'm complicit in his death and I'm getting paid for it. This is a dark day. And in the midst of all that and more that is surrounding him, Jesus is in complete control. No one takes his life from him. God is authoring this story even when it feels like total chaos. Hey, 
all this stuff is happening. Jesus isn't panicking. He isn't freaking out. He isn't starting to lash out at his friends out of fear or anger in the way that you or I would. He's trusting the Father. He's looking to God the Father, and he's knowing that all of this is happening, and he's actually ushering in, inaugurating a kingdom that cannot be shaken. That's coming, and he knows it. Hey, can I be honest? Like, It sure seems like there are places in my life where chaos abounds. It just seems like there are places in my life that I wake up in the middle of the night, and it's like, it's too dark here, God. I don't understand what you're doing, Jesus. I just, it feels like, right now, it feels like you're not for me. And I know that you said you are, but it just feels like you're not for me. There are moments in my life that are that way, and I just want to say, if you feel that sometimes too, can I just encourage you, can I just urge you to look to Jesus? On the night that he was betrayed, when everything was surrounding him in darkness, his eyes were on God our Father, trusting him, knowing that it's an upside-down kingdom. Sometimes things feel totally backward, but God is working in the middle of it to bring us life. That's the heart of Jesus in the middle of his pain, in the middle of his struggle. I was thinking this week as I was reading through all this, I was reminded of the story in C.S. Lewis's classic, uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. If you know the story, the kids, the children, they make their way into Narnia. They're getting to know the other characters and they're they're aware that there's chaos surrounding the, this kingdom in Narnia, but there's a king who's coming, Aslan, the Christ figure, and they're starting to learn, like, hey, we want the rule and reign of Aslan, the king. But then they find out he's a roaring lion, and they say to the others who, who have experienced Aslan and know him, and they, they say, wait, he's a lion? That doesn't sound very safe. Is he safe? And the answer that they get is not what they were expecting. Others say, oh, no, he's not safe, but he is good, and he's the king, and you can trust him. And I want to say, friends, if you're feeling pain, if it feels like darkness is surrounding you, Jesus, it might not feel safe following him all the time, but he is good, and he's the king, and you can trust him. Hey, if it feels like you're being put to death while you're following Jesus, can I just remind you that you're trusting, and you have a king who took death face to face, head on, and won. That's the king that you have. In Jesus, we have a temple that is the place that we know God will be faithful to meet with us. In Jesus, you have a sacrifice that is a guarantee paid for with body and blood that you can have freedom.